this on? Oh, well, there it goes. Yeah. I just, I can just talk. Can y'all hear me? If I do like this? No? Really not? Good. Wonderful. Awesome. I'm just going to do this because it's a lot easier for me to talk this way. Um, we're going to give Sammy a break, so I'm going to be talking tonight. I'm Matthew Trexler, the RUF intern. Um, we are continuing our series on the Apostles' Creed. We are looking at what it, when we talk about when Jesus ascends and He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. What does that mean? But before we look at the passage tonight, I want to play a quick game. Uh, now the game doesn't require you to get out of your seat. It doesn't even require you to say anything. You just have to sit there. It's a, it's a mental game. It's a thinking game. Um, and you actually might have to go back to your childhood uh, to answer it. But here it is. It's a question. What do these four things have in common? The first, Cedric Diggory's wardrobe, Alice's looking glass, Platform 9 and 3 quarters, King's Cross Station, London, and Revelation 4 1. Hmm. Think for a second. <laughs> um, you don't have to say anything out loud. Um, but, if, you, if you're not familiar with the last one, you don't know how, mm, let's see, which one doesn't relate there. If the last one, if you, that doesn't make sense, um, you at least know the first three. Hopefully, if you've, even if you haven't read the books or seen the movies. The first one is a wardrobe that Lucy enters from, she leaves London to enter into snowy Narnia, right? The second one, Alice Looking Glass, is the looking glass she goes through into Wonderland. And then Platform 9 and 3 quarters is where Harry and his friends leave the Dursleys and they leave Privet Drive to go into Hogwarts School. And what I want you to see is that Revelation 4.1 is actually the exact same setup as those stories. It's very important because in the very first verse we have a door and a door that is open. And I want you to see that image, a wardrobe, a looking glass, a platform, and a door. One where you leave a mundane, our, our world, and you enter into another reality. And I want that to be there when we read this passage, because this passage, when we, what we're about to read right now in Revelation 4, uh, is high literature. Like, it is, it is so many images, there are so many powerful and moving pictures, and I want you all to just kind of, as you read it, as this unfolding drama, that you picture these things in your head. Because all of the images and all of the things in this passage is important, and all of them have meaning. Um, and it's very rich, and it's very beautiful. And as I, so I'm going to read Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you, or you can follow along, but... Again, try and picture the image. This is John speaking. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. This door is going to be very important as we continue to go on, especially on in sermons, so remember this door. A door standing open in heaven. And in the first, in the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, 
Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who'd sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the throne were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come to this text tonight, Lord, I pray that uh, it is You who speaks, um, that I may disappear. um, That, Lord, we will see the door that is open. We will see Your throne, Father, and we too will worship You. Lord, I pray tonight that we leave here worshiping the One who is on the throne. Um, for our hearts long for Him, and we need Him. Lord, please give us Yourself. Give us Your Spirit, and may He be present here. And may I receive no glory for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There is a very famous campus minister uh, named Les Newsom. Uh, he was a, a campus minister at Ole Miss for a number of years. He's an area coordinator now, and I had the chance to take his class at RTS Charlotte uh, this summer, and it was, it was fantastic. And I remember him telling the specific story. He said that he, he has a daughter, and when she was a lot younger, she came up to him, and she said, Daddy, are you and Mommy the Tooth Fairy? And very sheepishly, he responded, yes. And she was, and just like this pain came over her face, and she said, does that mean then that she isn't real? And he said, Les Newsom said that he, learned, he has learned to hate that question. Or he's learned to hate that idea. Is for the last 200 years, our world has lived with a particular set of eyes that has seen the world and has accounted for it. And, has, and everything that we see before us, we have tried to account for it in terms of scientific terms. Right? Like we've tried to understand it in all these different kinds of ways. And what we have discovered... I don't care how many Richard Dawkins TED Talks you fill my inbox with. Now, what we have discovered is that science is unable to answer the deepest longings and questions of our human heart. 
Now, I'm not saying that Christianity is anti-science. If you hear me saying that, you're not paying attention. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that we have lost our sense of awe and wonder at things. We have lost our ability to see something and stand amazed by it. He said that he hated that his daughter had to choose between her imagination on the one hand and what was, quote, real on the other. If you're, this is a side note, if you're actually going to ever be able to live the Christian life, you're actually going to have to have a redeemed imagination, right? Because there's a sense in which you do not know what the new heavens and new earth will be like. You can have to imagine yourself what you will be like in a glorified state. You have to imagine what it is that Christ is like and who He is and then what you are called to be. Jesus actually requires you to use your imagination in order to live the Christian life. But we'll get to that in a second. That there's this idea that we have lost our sense to stand amazed at something. Uh, Sammy uh, gave me this. Uh, he wanted me to listen to stand-up comedian named Todd Berry, um, who's, who's hilarious. And he said he, he had this great like segment where he goes to watch a magic show. And he says, there's nothing truly more defeating than being a magician. Like, there's really like, nothing more defeating at all. Because your entire job as a magician is to... He's like, as a stand-up comedian, like, it's okay. Like, you stand up in front of people, you know how you're doing based on whether people laugh or not. Like, if they're laughing, you're doing great. If they're not, don't quit your day job, right? But as a magician, you're standing there, and everyone in the audience is trying to figure out that it, and prove that what you're doing is not magic. So they're just sitting there saying, Oh, nope, nope, that's just an illusion. That's not happening. This isn't magic. That's not magic. He said he was literally sitting there and someone was flying around the room without strings. Like literally flying around the room. And the guy sitting next to him was like, it's just magnets. <laughs> it's, it's just magnets. And he was like, as if this guy understands Newtonian physics whatsoever, that he understands gravity, that he can like literally watch a man fly around the room. He's like, yeah, that's not real. That's magic. I mean, that's, that's an illusion. That's magnets. It's not, it's not real. And he's like, how crushing it is for magicians. Like, they never get any kind of affirmation whatsoever, right? Like, because everyone's trying to pick apart everything that they're doing, you know? It's like, magicians, like, that's like the worst job ever because you don't have any friends as a child and you don't really have any friends as an adult either. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm sorry if I offended, like, the aspiring magician demographic. Uh, at USC, but I mean, it's just kind of true. Like, it's just, it's just sad. It's just very sad. Um, but there's a sense in which, like, people cannot stand amazed anymore. And there's three things that I want to see from this passage specifically tonight. It's three things. What John sees, what John means, and how it applies. What he sees, what it means, and how it applies. The first thing. You don't really have to be a CSI analyst to see what it is that John is so enamored with, right? What is it? It's the throne. He's enamored with this image. He goes through the door. He is walking in the, he's through the Spirit. He is coming into God's reality, walking down the main street of reality itself. And he's in God's reality. And what he's enamored with before him is the throne. Now, as a good Jewish man, he does not describe the one who's on the throne. Do you notice that? He gives no description whatsoever of what he looks like. But he does give us a description of what it's like to look at him. He says it's like staring into jasper and carnelian, into the rarest of jewels. 
Like if you stare into a diamond, there's a sense if, you, if it catches the light exactly, it like bursts into flame in some way. There are some things in this world that the mere looking at them is the reward itself. Right? Like I went uh, to Covenant College um, in Chattanooga, which is like this Christian college on a mountain because we were trying to escape the damaging cultural influences of urban Chattanooga. Um, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Not really, but sometimes it seemed like that. Um, so we were up there. But the beautiful part of it is that is there's like panoramic view of the Blue Ridge Mountains and the Chattanooga Valley. And I remember specifically my senior year two years ago at this time in October, all the leaves had changed. It was so beautiful. So I skipped my American music class um, and I drove 15 minutes across the mountain to this park called Cloudland Canyon. Guys, it was, it's incredible. Like it's one of the most beautiful parts of East Tennessee, and I, and I just spent the whole day just like walking around and looking at the waterfalls and like hiking the trails, and I remember like coming out to this ridge and sitting out on the very edge of the rock and looking out over the entire Chattanooga Valley and the Tennessee River below and just these rolling mountainous hills and the Blue Ridge Mountains and all of the, like, the leaves were all the different colors, and then the sun was setting and the sky was filled with these pinks and yellows and reds, and guys, it looked as if the entire world had been set on fire. Like, it was so captivatingly beautiful, and I just, as I stared at it, I was like, time could just, like, go away. Like, this is amazing. And there was some sense, I don't know if you've ever felt this before, but when you look at something so beautiful, there's almost a sense that you almost want to become part of the beauty itself. There's almost like, I just want to be, like, be in this. Like, just staring at it and just being here is the reward itself. And what John is saying is that as I look at this throne, this is what I'm experiencing. This incredible, magnificent beauty. But that's not all that he sees. He also sees 24 elders around the throne. What, what is that? Uh, 24, if you divide it by 2, is 12. Um, yes, did you know that? By the way, um, good to know. Uh, but 12 is a significant number. You have 12 tribes of Israel, and you have the 12 apostles. And so what it represents is it represents the entire people of God, from the Old and the New Testament, before Christ and after Christ, and the entire people of God worshiping the one who is on the throne. And then you have these creatures. Uh, this is the weirdest part of the passage. And you're like, and I, guys, I have studied this passage, and I, have, I can say with utter confidence, I have no idea what these creatures stand for. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea. But I don't think that's actually what's important, because I don't think it's important. It's not so much who they are and what they represent, but what they do. And what is it that they are doing? They are worshiping the one who's on the throne. And what it shows is that you have the sea of glass, and you have these elders, and you have these creatures. And what it says is that as John goes through this door, there is someone who is seated on that throne who is of cosmic importance to you. Um, I'm not that important. If you wanted to meet with me, you could text me, you could come up after this, you could like call me, you could drive five minutes down the road, and we would have a conversation on my porch. I love that. You could see me pretty much any time you wanted to. But if I wanted to go talk to the President of the United States, I could not just go up to the White House and knock on the door and be like, Yo, Barack, what's up? Please come out. President Obama, what's up? It's time for us to meet. I want to talk to you. No, I would be like carried away to jail. Right? Like, I can't do that. Like, if I wanted to meet with the President, I'd have to go through like local 
congressmen and then representatives and then state senators and then U.S. senators and then ambassadors and then maybe, maybe I would get to meet with the president because he's too important. And what I'm trying to see is as we look at these elders and we look at these creatures and we look at these at the sea of glass and we look at all of these things that you can tell that the one who sits on the throne is of cosmic importance because I'm going to say that you can tell the importance of the person you know how important they are by the many layers that you must go through to get at them. And so there's a sense in which these concentric circles are going around the throne and they are worshiping him. And there's a sense in which he is at the very center of all reality. And what I'm going to say is he cannot, he will not, and I'm going to argue for a second, he will, he is not ignored. He cannot, he will not, and he is not ignored. But this leads to what John means by this. Some of you here tonight are saying, okay, I don't even know if there is a God. And some of you might even have enough of an imagination to say, okay, I would say that there maybe there is a God on the other side of that reality. But so what? Like, what does that even mean? Why does that even benefit me? To what does that even say? And what I want us to look at and what I want us to think about is that God is not someone who is far, far away, as the fairy tales have told us. He is not in some distant galaxy far, far away. He is actually near. His reality is actually, His world is actually among us. Heaven, there's a sense in which God dwells among us, but we cannot see it. We, we, we have veiled faces. And there's a sense in which His reality is there, and all we can sense from it is echoes. Um, I'm going to argue that your mental, spiritual, social, psychological DNA is formed daily by echoes from that world. That God is in many ways breaking into your reality. And that world, in that world, something is going on. And, it's, and, and what is it that they are doing? What is it that's going on in that world? This is the crux of the sermon, so if you haven't been paying attention so far, tune in now. What is it that they are doing? They're worshiping, right? Like they are worshiping. What does that even mean? Because you say, well, I don't, I don't understand what, why is worship so important. Guys, worship is the controlling mechanism of your life as a student at USC, and you don't even know it, right? Like... What you guys live for, what you guys wake up for, and what you do is defined by worship. And many of you, and I know I've got to maybe do some heavily illustrations here to kind of unclog this view that we have of worship, because what you've, many of you think that maybe what we did up here before was worship. Now, this is not an offense against music team by any means, because just by its very, by its very definition, they are facilitators of worship. But that is not necessarily the definition of worship. What is worship? And here is my very quick kind of definition. Worship is nothing more than something that happens to you when you find something that you value. Worship is something that happens to you when you come across something that you value. Take the sports fanatic, for example, right? Like sports fanatic at USC. The person who reads the newspaper articles and the magazines and he pours over them every day. He even witnesses about it to his friends. He actually finds ways to insert it into the conversation. Did you see that play? Like, did you, can you believe that he did this? Can you believe that decision? And then he uses his hard-earned resources 
to go every week into the presence of his object of worship. His face aglow as he shouts down praises to the object of his highest affection. What is he doing? He's worshiping. If you ever wanted to work for First Pres, um, you have to go through an interview with Sinclair Ferguson. And he asks one question. He usually asks one very famous question that he says that he can tell everything he needs to know about a person by how they respond to this question. Do you want to know what it is? Uh, he says, oh. <laughs> oh, what do you think about when you aren't thinking? In the way he does it. What do you think about when you aren't thinking? What's on your mind when you have nothing else to think about? Or, with what will you console yourself when life disappoints you? How you answer that question shows what you worship. Because that thing is your God. It is what you worship. It is what you live for. Uh, some of you, you, like the preparation and the, and the, and the you pour over your studies, like anyone would describe it as religious fervor fanaticism, right? Like there's a sense in which even in our relationships, you, got, you guys know this, like you've been in relationships where people have been totally crushed because they come up to someone and they, and, and they pour, the, they want the entire weight of their identity onto this person, Right? Like, I need approval and, approval and affirmation and identity from you. And that just crushes that person because they can't bear the weight of that identity. And what you find is that we talk a lot about, you know, this way of having approval, idolatry, or power, or control, or whatever. But those are many things that we're seeking to get from our idols. And whatever that may be. Um, I mean, it could be grades. It can be relationship. For guys, a lot of times it's sexuality. Right? Like, we've been talking about imagination, the idea of, you know, leaving one reality into another. That is the very definition. Like, you're taking imagination when you do sexuality, and you're actually turning it into something twisted. You are saying, okay, I'm going to leave the mundaneness of my own life so that I can have this sexual fantasy, so I can have this idea, so that I can be in control, so that I, I can be the one who gets the approval and affirmation that I need. Right? Like, that, that, that's where you go to. That's where you go for your comfort. That's where you go for your approval. That's where you go for your power and for your control and all of those things. For some of you, it might be the idea of a potential relationship. Right? Like, the idea of a husband or wife saying to you on that day, I will be with you until death do us part. And you want that security and you want that safety. And everything in you longs for that. And what I want you guys to hear is that those those, those that desires that we have, those aches and longings that we have in our heart that ask, do I matter? Do people love me? Am I loved? Can I be fully known and at the same time fully loved? Like those things matter. Those are not bad questions. It's not this idea that we slap on this Christian answer where it's like, no, what you need to do is become a robot where you kind of detach yourself from some spiritual feeling. Like, no, like these desires that you have are real and they are legitimate and you have them for a real reason. And I want to be very quick before I answer something like that. Many of you, when Sammy or I or Megan meet with you, you think that we're just kind of like trying to pull apart and see, you know, what skeletons lurk underneath your closet. When really what we want to say to you is not what skeletons did you did you find today? But has Jesus become bigger to you in a past year? 
Is Jesus greater to you? Is he sweeter to you? Is he your object of worship? Is he your object of your highest affection? And if not, then what is? There's a great quote by a theologian named Henry Skugel. Uh, maybe it's a great name, but if you've never heard of him, he has this great quote where he says, The worth and excellency of a soul is measured by the object of its highest affection. Now think about that for a second. The worth and excellency of a soul is measured by the object of its highest affection. You are what you worship. Uh, that's what, you know, maybe you remember as a kid, like, your parents telling you, like, I remember I ate PB&Js, like, every day. Um, every day, lunch. my mom's like, you're going to become a PB&J. Um, there's a sense, though, like, what, what you worship, like, that is what you become. If you worship sexuality, you will become a sexual being. If you worship money, you're going to become a human calculator. If you worship relationships, you're always going to be looking for that next person from which you can pour something from or pour into. Like, what you worship defines you. And what you worship, you need to look at it and say, okay, what is it in my life that if I were to strip it away, I were to say, this is what makes me, me. What is that for you? Because whatever that is, it is functionally your God. It is what you are drawing all of your value, all of your meaning from. And what I want you to see from the tragedy is that what, if you're not worshiping the one who is on the throne, you're not worshiping him, you're worshiping something else. And that something else is actually going to make you less human. You have to hear this. It's going to make you less human. You need to think about this. The thing that we long for so much is to be alive, to feel, to be filled up, to know that we are approved and loved, to the sense of being a part of something larger than ourselves. That's human longings. We were made for that. But when you go and you find it in porn or whatever it may be, what you're going to find is that when you devote yourself to that, you might get a, a little high from it for a moment, but you're actually going to become warped. You're going to become dehumanized. You're going to become less human. Because there's a sense in which you are pouring your whole self into this. And it cannot, it cannot, it cannot satisfy. It can't. And you need to hear that. And I need to hear that. And there is an echo from the reality of God's world that says, come up, come and see, come and worship. Uh, we've seen what John sees, what John means, and now we look at how it applies. The way that God is going to bring transformation in your life is by changing the object of your highest affection. It's either it's going to happen there, or it's going to happen poorly, if not at all. Um, because God longs, and you guys need to hear this, God longs to satisfy you in the very deepest of your being. He is good and He longs to satisfy you. Uh, he longs to fill you up. It's Halloween, right? Like, so you have, you're, you're going to drive through the streets and you see like these like, well, I guess they were like pumpkins or ghosts or whatever. They kind of like lost air. They kind of like deflated. You can't tell if like it's a pumpkin or like deflated basketball. You're like, what is that? I don't really know. And it's like as you like pump air into it and like, then like, oh, that's what it was. Okay, I see. There's a sense, though, in which as you serve other idols, as you serve other things, it begins to drain 
all of those things out of you. So that you actually lose and you become warped and you become less than human in some ways. And what you need to see is that God has come to restore you. Jesus has come in the flesh as a man to restore humanity, to actually fill you up. So that when you finally come to worship, you actually become more alive, you become more human. So that people look at you and say, oh, this is what you are like. This is who you are. This is what you are made to be. And that's what, God, that's what the Lord is, in many ways, seeking uh, to do. There is a destiny for everyone who follows the Lamb. There is a destiny for everyone who follows the Lamb that in the very end we will come and we will see Him and it will be so soul-crushingly beautiful that literally we will be there for an eternity and it will feel as though eternity is not enough time to praise Him because that's how beautiful He is. And He says, come and look upon Me. Come and I can satisfy you. There's many ways in which we've been talking about a door. For many of you, you kind of stand on the outside in some ways. And as you kind of come around RUF or you've come around some of the local churches or you've been around Christians, there's a sense in which the door has cracked open a little bit and you sense this, you smell this fragrance, this breeze, this refreshment. Oh, what is that? And it makes you curious. But you haven't quite gone through yet. You're still on the outside looking in. Right? There's a sense in which like, you haven't quite gone through the door yet. But my question to you tonight is even if you don't feel this, are you at least curious? My brother, um, maybe some of you know, some of you don't, uh, he's not a believer. Um, I love my brother very much. Um, and our relationship has been strained in some ways. And, uh, I, I haven't been able to talk to him as much as I'd want to by any means. Uh, he's at the College of Charleston, president of the SAE down there. Um, well, yeah, we're very opposite. Um, he's cool, I'm not. Um, <laughs> get it out there and grab your Mustang on the football team. I was, not, I was on the beach. Well, no, uh, um, but we're at the beach this summer, and uh, he, we finished dinner, and he asked me, Matt, would you like to go for a walk on the beach with me? I was like, sure. I've never been talked to you. That'd be great. So he began to share with me like the struggles with, the, with, the, with the, his relationships and these different kinds of things. And he's like talking to me. And he's like, so what is it you do again? And like, you work at campus ministry at USC. He's like, why do you do that? It's such a waste of time. Uh, you know, and we keep talking, keep talking. And I finally, I just asked him, like, Daniel, like, you, you, we both are pushing home, but like, Daniel, what happened? Like, I know something happened. I know, I know that you were hurt in some way. I, I, I just, I just want to know, like, like, what happened to you? And there's a sense in which, like, we never got to discuss it. We never got to talk about this. And he's like, Matthew, like, I, I, I hated myself. And, like, I, I, and people did not like me. And, like, I wanted to transform myself. I wanted to, like, reinvent myself. I wanted to be someone new. And I truly thought that Jesus would not love me. I don't think he's good. And as I began to, like, talk with him and share with him, like, I know I've been there before, too, Daniel. I was once there as well. Like, I, I know what you're talking about. But, Daniel, I've come to know him. And I'm telling you, he's good. I'm telling you, he's incredible. I'm telling you, you can't even imagine. As I began to like just talk about who it was that Jesus was, his gentleness, his compassion, what a way in which he has saved me from my sin, the ways in which he has loved me, the ways he has taken me back and he's restoring me. I, I look into my brother's eyes and I see, I see curiosity. And I ask Daniel, like, are you at least curious? And he said, yeah. And this is what broke my heart. But he's just like, if only that were true. If only what you say is true. But I just don't believe that it is. 
And God, as I stand, many of you are in the same place, and I, and I stand before you, and I say, God, it is true. Like, it is true. He is that good. He is. And He does love you. And He can satisfy you. You don't have to keep living the way that you've been living. You don't have to keep living for the way that you, that you do, because so many guys, so many of you, you're so miserable, because you're only as happy as your idol allows you. You live in anxiety. Like, will this group of people approve of me today? Will this person approve of me today? Will I be able to get satisfaction from this? Will I be able to do this? And the the thing is, like, many of you find that your idol is actually crushing you. That person who told you that they always love you has left you. And there are many of you who go go to sleep every night on your pillow, and you just, like... You, you wish every night that your parents had never gotten divorced. Or you come to school, you come to college for the first time and you discover real competition and you're maybe not as talented or as smart as you thought you were and you're crushed by that. And this group of people has rejected you. They no longer want to be around you. They don't want you around you. Whatever it may be, all of you sense that and what you need to hear is that He is one who sticks closer than a brother. That He is one whom you were made for. And this is what I I, want to go back to Revelation 3 in a very, very familiar but very misunderstood verse where it says, I stand at the door and knock. And many of us think that that is the door of our heart. It's not the door of your heart. Right? Like there's this image of when we're growing up and it's like, Meek and mild, gentle Jesus, like rapping at the door. Oh, please let me in. Please. Won't you let me be the Lord of your life? Don't you love the way we talk? Won't you let him be the Lord of your life? I don't even like reading this passage, but no one lets us man be the Lord of anything. He just is. Right? Like, there's a sense in which that's not, it's not the door to your heart. I, I'm going to argue that, that door in Revelation 3.20 is exactly the same door in Revelation 4.1. That's actually the door to God's reality. And he is pounding at the door of your reality. He is pounding at it. And he is breaking it open. And, he is, and the echoes of his world is coming in even now. And so many times we seek to suppress that. And say no. Or like I don't feel that. Or no I don't. I, don't, I can't go there. And what you need to see is that it's saying to you. Do not kick against reality. Right? Like, I am the Lord of history. I have made all things. I command the hosts of heaven. To go against me is in the end to go against what is best for you. Do not despise my discipline. Do not kick against the goats, as he tells Paul. Do not fight. Do not kick against the door of uh, that reality. And I, I always hated that we never finished that verse. We never saw what actually Jesus says after that. And I love it. You see it in Revelation 3. It says, To him who conquers, I will permit him to sit with me on my throne. Just think about that for a second. If it wasn't in the Bible, I'd be blasphemous. Okay? Like, I will permit him to sit with me on my throne. The very throne that, he, that John then goes to describe. 
the one where we come into the throne room and it's so soul-crushingly beautiful that we want to be a part of the beauty itself. And what God is saying is, Jesus is saying is that if you trust in me, you will not spend eternity in the cheap seats. You won't. I will actually draw you in to myself and you will sit with me on my throne and you will be filled with me and you will finally know who you are and who I am and all of your insecurities and all of your fears and all of your idols will be gone. And that question that we long to ask, are you making all the sad things come untrue? The answer to that question will resound through the halls of heaven for an eternity. Yes. Yes. I have come to make all the sad things come untrue. There are no more tears. This is not a fake fairy tale. This is true. And the longing to become a part of the beauty and the captivating itself will be fulfilled as we come and as we sit on the very throne room of God with our Father. And as we look into the very face of the Savior. For the Father has looked into the Son and He has pardoned us. And we can finally know who uh, there's a movie. Um, it's not even my favorite movie. I, w- I thought about maybe not using it just because it's kind of cheesy. But I think m- most of you have all seen it. The movie Tangled. Um, I don't know. Yeah. You're like, yeah. Some of you are. Um, you've like, seen it. But no, I've never seen it. But there's a, there's a very, the thing I love about the movie, there's a very beautiful image when, I don't even remember the girl's name, the girl's name is, she's like sitting in a boat. And you see all these lanterns that kind of come out from the kingdom, right? You know what I'm talking about? It's a really beautiful scene of like all these many like thousands of different lanterns. And what you know about Rapunzel is that she's actually royalty. She was always meant to be the daughter of the king and queen, but she was captured and she's lived under this authority of these, the, you know, the tyranny of, these, of this false parent, right? And as and on every Every, I think, one of her birthdays, they, the king and queen send out these lanterns across the whole kingdom in hopes that she will see uh, the lanterns in the sky and come home. And what I want you to see is that you were made for something more than this right now. You were made to be the kings and queens, the elders that Revelation 4 speaks of. You were made to be there. You were made to sit with him on his throne. You were made to be loved by the Lord Jesus. You were made for that. And there are signs in the sky and there are echoes and there are lanterns that are saying, come home. Come home. And for many of you, you feel as though you've given yourself so much to this other thing that you don't even know if you can turn back. You don't even have feelings anymore. You don't even know where the right thing is talk about having lost the track and lost the path. You don't even know where you are. And you feel so numb and so helpless and so afraid and you're like, I don't even know what's going on. Maybe that's why you feel so displaced this year in this particular school year. I don't even know where I am. And what I want you to hear is that the Lord Jesus comes to you it's time to come home. Your time to, it's time to come to where you're always going to be. I know that it's hard, but take my hand. I will lead you into repentance. I can do this. It's not the strength of your belief. It's not the power of how much you believe. It's not even your faith. It is what I have done for you. Take my hand, and I will lead you into eternity. 
I will lead you through the long road of repentance, even now in this life. And there are many things that we need to repent of. And there's many idols that need to be smashed. And it's going to be hard, and the Lord is going to cut them out, but it will be for our healing. And it will be for the healing of others. And He longs to do that. And He can do And He will do that. Because He says, anyone who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for who You are, Lord. As we look upon the throne, we ask that we Come and worship you. So we may pause for a moment and know your goodness. We may know who you are. But we feel many in here tonight feel so lost. We are physically far from home and we are spiritually far from home. Lord, I pray that you find us, that you take us in your arms, that you be our shepherd, and that you lead us back. Lord, we thank you. There are later, there are signs in the night sky that show us, Lord, that there is no grace. We pray that we love you and that we worship you. Lord, forgive us of our many sins. Forgive us and cleanse us of our hearts. It is in your name we pray.